So good evening. I'm Robert Polito, director of the New School Graduate Writing Program, and it's my immense pleasure to welcome you to tonight's discussion, Self-Censorship, Art, Morality, and Decency. Our evening is another vital episode in the ongoing Village Delay Walls and Bridges series in New York City. As we move into season two, I think everyone agrees that we are witnessing and participating in an extraordinary cultural transformation. What our inspired, resourceful friends, Guy, Cedric, Matilda, Julie, Emmanuel, and Marianne, are creating here is daring, ambitious, and totally fresh. With their elegant minds, their vision, and their persistent, they are, I think, the perfect creative partners, and I wonder if we might all applaud them now. Supported by the Conseil de la Création Artistique, I guess the Council of Artistic Creation, um, Walls and Bridges not only convenes French and American intellectuals, they also bring together for conversation philosophers, artists, and writers who ordinarily might not speak to one another across their individual disciplines in an atmosphere of mutual respect and investigation. Our focal point tonight is a vast, complex one, we live in a moment where, for instance, the, the issue might actually sound more like insufficient self-censorship. This age of insistent confession, memoir, the personal essay, the reality TV program, and a writing program like ours is inevitably caught up in that too. Yet censorship is one of those topics that never goes away and you just can't stop thinking about it. There's still classic state censorship. Only a few weeks ago, we saw the spectacle of the governor of Maine removing a labor mural from the Department of Labor lobby. And there's subtler forms of censorship and self-censorship. The self-censorship of progressive political correctness and the perhaps cultural rebound and return of the repressed of the fears and anxieties that correctness shadows in mass movements like the Tea Party. Censorship and assaults on censorship are also crucial aspects of the history of modernism, from Ulysses to Howell to pornography. And I thought as another way into tonight's discussion, I would read a paragraph from Gertrude Stein's monumental novel, The Making of Americans, a paragraph about various abuses that might be viewed as a sort of allegory about censorship. In the context, a father is trying to silence his daughter. The daughter responds, and the result is the father's silence. It happens very often that a man has it in him, that a man does something, that he does it very often, that he does many things when he is young and older and an older one. It happens very often that a man does something, that a man has something in him, and he does a thing again and again in his living. There was a man who was always writing to his daughter that she should not do things that were wrong, that would disgrace him. She should not do such things, and in every letter that he wrote to her, he told her she, she should not do such things, that he was her father and was giving good moral advice to her. And always he wrote to her in every letter that she should not do things, that she should not do anything that would disgrace him. He wrote this in every letter he wrote to her. He wrote very nicely to her. He wrote often enough to her. And in every letter he wrote to her that she should not do anything that was a disgraceful thing for her to be doing. And then once she wrote back to him, that he had not any right to write moral things in letters to her, that he had taught her, that he had shown her, that he had commenced in her the doing the things, the things that would disgrace her. And he had said then when he had begun with her, 
He had said he did it so that when she was older, she could take care of herself with those who wished to make her do things that were wicked things. And he would teach her, and she would be stronger than such girls who had not any way of knowing better. And she wrote this letter, and her father got the letter, and he was a paralytic always after. It was a shock to him getting such a letter. He kept saying over and over again that his daughter was trying to kill him. And now she had done it, and at that time he got the letter, he was sitting by the fire, and he threw the letter in the fire, and his wife asked him, what was the matter? And he said, it is Edith, she is killing me. What, is she disgracing us, said the mother? No, said the father, she is killing me. And that was all he said then of the matter, and he never wrote another letter. So I'm also happy tonight that our moderator is the ingenious and multi-talented Benjamin Walker. He produces and hosts a weekly radio program, Too Much Information, that airs on station WMFU and is available as a podcast. He has worked at many major public radio stations, including WNYC, where he was the senior cultural producer. He was an affiliate at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School and the creator and host of weekly radio program podcast, Theory of Everything. So please join me now in welcoming Benjamin Walker, who will further introduce the panel. So thank you very much for that, Robert. And uh, thanks again to the Village Gilet for putting on this programming. And I urge you all to go online or look at the programs that are being passed out there at the beginning of their second series of programs. And there are really a lot of great uh, events over the next couple of weeks. So tonight we're here to talk about self-censorship, uh, creativity, limits, and laws. Uh, we have an artist, a writer, a philosopher, and two philosophers. Um, let me quickly uh, explain how the format's going to work. Uh, I'm going to introduce our panelists one by one. Nan Golden is going to show a couple images and talk about them. And then Lynn Tillman's going to read a story from her new book, Someday This Will Be Funny. And then I'm going to speak with our two uh, French guests about uh, a couple of texts that they wrote that are also on the Village Gilet website that you can download later that have been translated. And their website is ingeniously called Villa Voice. So, all right, so uh, let's start. Uh, uh, sitting next to me is the photographer Nan Golden, who has been taking pictures uh, since the 1960s in Boston and in the New York starting in the 70s. Nan Golden has taken intensely personal photographs of her family, friends, and lovers. In 1979, she presented her first slideshow in a New York nightclub, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, the name which she gave to her ever-evolving show that eventually grew into a 45-minute multimedia presentation. Um, she's first exhibited at Matthew Marks Gallery in 1992, and recent exhibitions include the slide and video presentation Sisters, Saints, and Sibyls, uh, in Paris, and also she has a show currently up at the Louvre, and um, uh, <laughs> and uh, Nan Golden lives and works in Paris and New York. Hi, thank you for introducing me. Um, I have a lot more than seven minutes worth of stuff to talk about. Basically, I've brought all the incidents in which I or my friends and I was involved in that were actually censored by the law. Um, in terms of the letter that our man just wrote, 
it's exactly what happened with my own father when I was publishing my first book, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. He wrote many, many letters and came to New York from Boston many times to ask me not to publish the book because he thought it would prove that the family had killed my sister. And this went on and on. And in 1988, I went into a rehab center and they wouldn't let me have the book because they said it would cause sex and drug urges in the other patients. And when I got out, the book out, it was missing pages that had been razored perfectly. And it turned out it was my parents' edition, that they had censored it for themselves to look at so that they didn't have to remember that pictures of myself having sex were in it. But it didn't cause a rupture with my parents because I in no way alluded to the idea of my parents having participated in the suicide of my sister. The other person who was very strong at that time about the ballad not being published was Brian, my boyfriend at the time. And he had battered me severely in 84. Um, the book came out in 86. And he was sure that the book would show that he had battered me. The book shows pictures of me battered. It shows pictures of him. But it, has, it doesn't have his name at any place in relation to the story of being battered, which I tell in the introduction. He was able to go to the lawyers of Aperture and ask them to please keep n not to publish the book. And so what they did is they took out these five pictures of Brian. Yeah, these. Okay. So, no. Um, the lawyers felt that they were in no way obscene, but they had to protect themselves by publishing, taking out anything that could be found legally obscene. So there were five pictures that were later shown, yep, of me and Brian having sex. No, that's not me. Okay, wait, go back. That, no, that, yeah, keep going, that, that, no, 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 you have five, but oh, there's a toilet, and Brian after coming, that's the strongest one, so these were not published until much later, he didn't try to do anything once the book came out, because I never mentioned him as the man who had battered me. And I did that partially because I wanted it to be about every man and every relationship and the potential of violence of every relationship. I wanted to make it more universal, more about myself, but not pinpointing which man was capable of doing this in the book. In the very beginning, in the 70s, I wasn't allowed entry to Rhode Island School of Design because they said that they don't allow drag queens into school. And one of the teachers had been teaching at a former school I'd been at, and I'd had sex with him. So he knew that I wasn't a drag queen. So he went in front of the board and spoke in my behalf, and the law was changed as a result of me having been a queen and then not being a queen. So I'm very proud of that. The biggest 
censorship that I'm associated with is the Artist Space show in 1989 that I curated, in which David Warner, I asked David Wonorovich to write the um, beginning essay. And the two issues that they, the two lines that they took issue with are the Cardinal O'Connor saying he'd like to take part in the Operation Rescues blocking of abortion clinics, but his lawyers are advising against it. This fat cannibal from that house of walking swastikas up on Fifth Avenue should lose his church. The second one, this creep in black skirts has kept safer sex information off the local television station and mass transit advertising spaces for the last eight years of the AIDS epidemic, thereby helping thousands and thousands to unnecessary deaths. The entire piece is a beautiful, beautiful written rage against the government, against the fact that Reagan didn't say anything about AIDS for 12 years, which talk about censorship. That killed millions of people, that he never said anything. But they were calling me from all the... All the um, at that time, they knew that I had censored the show later in all the things that happened, everyone forgot that I'd censored the show completely. I was very surprised because I had just gotten out of the hospital and I was still living in Boston. Artist Space called me and asked me to curate a show. And so I did it about my community, which my work was always about. And I did it about AIDS because so many of my community had died and so many people were still sick. I had no idea that it was the first major show and please tell me if I'm wrong. I hope I am wrong. Done about AIDS in New York City. And we got a $10,000 or $20,000 grant from the NEA. And when David, the head of the um, artist space at the time, Susan Wyatt, went to the National Endowment to show the text that David had written so we would get clearance on it. They would never have seen this book in the world. It's not exactly, you know, something that has a huge distribution. But she, out of fear of her own position and probably to bring attention to the show, went to the NEA. They pulled the funding. David took out one fucking. So instead of the fucking, fucking fat cannibal, <laughs> he just wrote the fucking fat cannibal. <laughs> And that was the one uh, concession he would give them. Afterwards, Leonard Bernstein refused on our behalf the Congressional Medal of Honor, and we got the money back. And after that, the opening, at that time, the artist space probably had about 500 people at their openings. 15,000 people came. And out of that came the Day Without Art and the Red Ribbon Project, and a vast number of little groups that grew into big groups that had a big effect. So David became a saint, really. He became the speaking voice of our community about AIDS. I have many, many stories about my work being taken out of shows, being covered with black cloths in the museums, having police come and actually seize it. But the big one lately has been this one of two children. These are, one of these is my godchild. They live in Berlin. They're in their teens now, but they still stand by the picture. 
they used to perform for me every time I came over to visit. And at that time, they were going to a school that was half Turkish. So the older sister, put on, they both put on this outfit and was doing a dance, and she actually did. But fortunately, I didn't photograph that at that moment because I would have been in a lot more trouble. And for me, this picture is all about worship of the older sister and wanting to be like your older sister. It has nothing to do with nudity. Even my father, when he saw this picture, said, that's disgusting. And one, it was first shown at Matthew Mark's gallery. One woman came in and tried to get people to rouse to fury and marched down and, tried to, and went to get the police. It was censored in England from Alton John's collection and at the Baltic Museum. It was, again, the director taking it to the police so that it would get clearance. And, of course, it didn't get clearance, and they hit the newspaper in a big way. I was um, claimed to be a pornographer in all the British newspapers. Alton John refused to take it out of the show. It belonged to him, and he spoke out on my behalf very strongly. I also have a letter from the two girls that's very beautiful about how they feel about the picture and that what happened on that night. So this is the one that I'm continuing to have trouble with. Um, the other big thing I want to mention is the Catholic Church. I did a piece at the Salpetriere in Paris in 2004, I think, and it's called Sisters, Saints, and Sybils. And it was, it is, or was a three-screen uh, movie, slideshow, where people had to go up this New York fire escape we'd built and then onto this balcony looking down at this wax figure, this whole set that I had made, and they were at eye level with these three screens. And it told the story of three women who'd been basically censored by their fathers my sister Barbara, St. Barbara, and myself. And 350 people fainted, which I'm very proud of. It was my greatest moment. But um, it was in the church of the Salpetriere, which was the first mental hospital in France. It was a very famous hospital. Every year, the Festival d'Automne invited a visual artist to do a piece. The priest was very upset because underlining the piece is um, the text, motherfucker, 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 throughout the whole text, because it was about the relationship between my parents and my sister. They called the bishop of France. He came, the great cardinal bishop, whoever's the top in France, and from now on, Salpetria is never allowed to be used again for visual art, for the Festival d'Automne. So that's one big one. Anyway, I'll talk more when they let me. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, let me just ask you one question before we move on then. Um, there's a great quote that I wanted to ask you about. You talk about your work being not just a diary, but a diary you let people read. And I was wondering, since so much of, of your life you've spent dealing with, you know, these are just some of the stories that you've just mentioned, I'm wondering if we come down to the question of self-censorship, especially how these experiences that you've, that you've just related, how you, would, how you would define that term for how it fits with your 
working practices today? Um, I don't think about the audience when I'm taking a picture. I think about what I'm photographing. And that's always been true. When there are a few times when my stomach tells me it's not appropriate to photograph. One was at David Warnerovich's bedside when he was dying. It just, it didn't feel right. It felt like an invasion, and I didn't take any pictures. He probably wouldn't have minded. He didn't particularly like being photographed, so I respected that. The other times are times that people were having sex that I knew they might later regret having it be shown, but that was more their censorship than mine. A number of friends, particularly one, allowed images of her having sex to be a big part of the ballad. She got married. She told me to take them out. She got divorced. I was allowed to put them back in. <laughs> she got married again. They had to come out. She got divorced. And she's still trying to get Aperture to take the pictures of her out of the book. But they can't do that. The book's been in print for years. So there's been a certain amount of censorship that I have to respect that my friend's lives change. And she claims I gave her drugs to take that picture. I didn't give her my drugs. <laughs> but um, I have never given drugs to somebody so that I could photograph them or in any other way induced somebody to allow me to photograph. That picture you just skipped by of the two boys having sex, I have actually a written... No, that's a boy and a woman. <laughs> no, that's... The, oh, that's... Okay, that's... Yeah. This is one of my close friends who's become a big actor in Germany, and he asked for all the pictures of him having sex to be taken out of my work, not shown in magazines. It was a big part of my last book, Devil's Playground. In fact, he's on the cover. And the last time I had a show, he wrote to me and asked me not just to not show any pictures of him having sex, but not to make it apparent that he's gay. And uh, this is somebody whose wedding to his boyfriend I was at in the Hamptons in 2001. And he's now decided he doesn't want to be out at all. And I've also seen this happen with other friends that were in a grid I made called Positive, about people living positively with AIDS. One of my friends who was very proud to be in it has asked to be taken out because he doesn't want to be seen as an artist with AIDS. So there's a lot of censorship going on. The big thing is children, and that's becoming harder and harder and harder. The picture of the little boy in his panties. Can you go to that? It was supposed to be the cover of a magazine I work for called Kidswear, and they de in Germany it's published, and they decided to take it out off the cover. So this just happened like last year. Yeah. We'll definitely come back to uh, children. I, I, one of our French philosophers has something to say, but let let me uh, introduce Lynn. Uh, Lynn Tillman is a novelist, short story writer, and critic. Her fiction includes the novels Haunted Houses, Motion Sickness, Cast in Doubt, and No Lease on Life. 
She's a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Fiction, and Tillman's art and literary criticism has been published in Art Forum, Freeze, Aperture, Nest, The Village Voice, The Guardian, Bomb, and The New York Times Book Review. She's written stories for a variety of contemporary artist books and catalogs, including those of Kiki Smith, Jessica Stockholder, Ronnie Horn, and Vic Munez. Uh, I was able to get her to read a story from her latest book uh, tonight, which just came out, published from Red Lemonade uh, this month. The collection of stories is called Someday This Will Be Funny. And uh, the story, would you like to introduce it? Uh, it's, yeah. yeah. You can use that microphone. Okay. So we'll have her say a few words. This is called uh, Give Us Some Dirt. And uh, the title uh, comes from, um, I'll tell you this in advance because we're in a kind of uh, didactic situation. Uh, <laughs> the title, Give Us Some Dirt, is taken from Clarence Thomas's testimony during the hearings in October 1991. And then uh, we can discuss it after. Give Us Some Dirt. On long summer nights in Pinpoint, the Georgia air hung still as a corpse, and they'd wait for a breeze to save them. The heat felt like another skin on Clarence. His mother would say, Clarence, what have you been up to, playing by the river again? Oh, Lord, we've got to clean you up for church, but aren't you something to behold? And his mother would clap her palms together or spread her arms wide like their preacher. Oh, Lord, she'd exclaim. Sometimes she'd point to sister and lovingly scold she doesn't get up to trouble like you, son. Clarence scrubbed the mud off until his knuckles nearly bled while his sister giggled. These days, she wasn't laughing so much. The dirt couldn't be washed away, not after Clarence kneeled in their white church and they slimed him with derision. They couldn't see who he was, how hard he'd worked, what he'd had to do, but he knew how to act. Behave yourself, boy, Daddy used to say. Clarence's grandfather, Clarence called him Daddy, was a strict righteous man who never complained, not even during segregation times. Didn't say a word, so Clarence wouldn't either. Those days were over, and they had their freedom now. He set Daddy's bust on a shelf near his desk in his new office. The D.C. nights mortified him, the air as suffocating as pinpoints. Clarence couldn't free himself of history's stench. On some interminable evenings, he nearly sent that woman, that woman a message, made the call, because she'd dragged him down for their delectation. He'd pick up the receiver and put it down. The noise of the ceiling fan assaulted him like a swarm of bugs. Clarence's jaw locked and his strong hands balled into fists. Every pornographic day of his trial, Clarence's wife, Virginia, sat quietly behind him. She barely moved for hours on end, didn't betray anything, and he worried that, if she had, the calumnies would have spread even further and the sniggers and whispers would have ripped her and him to pieces. He rubbed his face, recalling her startling composure, rigid at attention, a soldier in his beleaguered army. He didn't tell Virginia what the senators whispered, if he'd tried to marry her, if they'd had sex before the court decided Loving versus Virginia, they'd have been arrested. And wasn't it ironic? The court made Clarence's dick legal in Virginia, in Virginia. The Capitol's dirty joke, their dry Yankee lips cracked into bloodless grins. 
The room's high ceilings dwarfed him. Clarence glanced at a stack of legal papers. His wife was unassailable and white, but under their vicious spotlight, her skin looked pasty and sick. She clung to him through his humiliation, even when disgrace lingered like the smell of shit, and now she bore the tainted mark with him. Clarence had absorbed Daddy's lessons. He could keep everything inside, all of it. He watched his grandfather's bust, half expecting it to move, but it only, start, it only stared down at him from the shelf. Clarence picked the receiver up again and put it down again. He was in that weird trance and breathed in slowly to calm himself and breathed out slowly to stay calm, and then closed his eyes. Clarence would leave that woman alone, leave her be, and anyway, what was the sense what was there to say years later, and there'd be consequences. He was weary of scrubbing. When he won, when the seat was his, he watched his friend's joys, joy, black and white, and they embraced him, slapped him on the back. Remember what's important, what it's for, our principles. It's all worth it. Clarence was the blackest Supreme Court justice in the land, the blackest this country would ever see. He held that inside him, too, and patted his round belly. Clarence liked to joke about his heft, his gravitas, with his friends and the other justices. When he delivered his rare speeches, he occasionally mentioned his girth, which drew a laugh, since his body was a source of mirth. Sometimes his hands rested on his stomach during sessions when he was courtly, if mute. The court watchers noted that he never asked questions. They remarked on it until they finally stopped. Clarence felt he didn't have to say a word. He'd talk if he wanted, and he preferred not to. When his hair turned white like like Clinton's, that other fallen brother, Virginia said he looked distinguished, not old. Still, she worried about his weight. She didn't want to lose him. He hushed her. He intended to be on the bench as long as he could, at least as long as Thurgood Marshall. He looked at Daddy again, eternally silenced, and talked to him sometimes, telling him almost everything. Clarence could hear Daddy. He could hear his voice always. He knew what he'd say. Clarence's trial, Clarence's trial budged fat inside him. He'd never forget his ordeal, not a moment of it. He closed his briefcase and felt the urge to push, push Daddy from his perch. He would never let anyone forget his trial. Clarence chuckled suddenly in a harsh, guttural noise, escaped from him like a runaway slave. He'd have the last laugh, he was colorblind, and they'd all pay in the end. Thank you so much for that. You know, Lynn, I was fascinated when I read this story, and, and, and again, hearing you read it uh, gave me chills. I, can you talk a bit about, uh, uh, you know, I'm imagining this piece must have been challenging to write, and can you maybe talk about that? I mean, it seems that not only that we have a real character, a black character, and a controversial character, uh, for you, I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about some of the challenges and then how that fits in sort of when you think of self, that definition of self-censorship and what that means for you. Uh, the story came about because uh, Paul Malashevsky, another writer, was going to edit a part of uh, a McSweeney's uh, issue. It never happened, but uh, he asked a bunch of people, a bunch of writers, if 
He wanted to do something that he called the Supremes. <laughs> and he wanted each of us to uh, choose a, a Supreme Court justice and write back. And whoever got back to him first, you know, they got their choice. And I sent back, I was, uh, Souter was still on the, on the court then. And I was very interested in this uh, man who was such a mystery. And I thought I could do something with that. And, but I wrote back, and it, he had been taken. And it turned out the only person not taken was Clarence Thomas. And no one wanted to take Clarence Thomas. So, of course, then I wanted to take Clarence Thomas because of all the, the problems. Uh, and um, so I did a whole bunch of research. It is extraordinary that the guy never talks on uh, in the court. And it, he's into his fifth or sixth year of not talking on the court. And the references to Bartleby, uh, he prefer not to. Uh, uh, and uh, in my story, uh, which is, uh, I think, I wanted to... In some way, this is some form of resistance on the part of Clarence Thomas by not speaking. So I did a lot of research. I, of course, had watched the trial along with other people and millions of other people and um, uh, was very disturbed by it on all sorts of grounds, as many people were. And I read everything that he had written. I read some autobiographical remarks that he made about his grandfather. I tried to uh, use as much uh, material that I, that I could that uh, uh, was in some sense a portrait of him in words that he himself had spoken. Um, and then I just tried to uh, imagine what his... Uh, consciousness might be like or I mean one of the things that a novelist and a fiction writer can do is think about interiority and work with it in a way that it's hard to do in other in other mediums um, uh, in film I mean you if I think about somebody like Antonioni uh, he achieves it through the camera looking at a particular kind of architecture and the way in which he directs his actors, but with uh, but you get a chance in in writing to use language words that you think they may be using, and of course I have no idea if this is anywhere near who he is or thinks himself to be, but that's not really the point. I wanted to. Um, uh, think about this person and have some compassion for him. Uh, and and he's, uh, his opinions on the court are, to me, anathema, absolutely anathema and horrifying. But on the other hand, uh, I think his predicament, and I think what did happen during the... I mean, I don't believe it was a high-tech lynching, but I think that was a fantastic... I don't know who wrote that, maybe one of George... Bush's uh, speechwriters for him, but uh, uh, I, I do I do think that the spectacle of watching him and Anita Hill was to me uh, horrifying, uh, and um, so yeah. But the the racial issues here, I I think that you know, getting us beyond you know sexuality when we when we talk about censorship, you know, mostly we're thinking of mostly sexual issues. But I mm. think that for you as a novelist. 
delving into this territory of a very real controversial black man and yeah. in your story I'm wondering were you anticipating in our politically correct climate pushback or even criticism and how that affected your own sense of you know self-censoring how you tread into that I think if I were a, a, a bigger deal as a writer uh, <laughs> frankly uh, th there would be more controversy but uh, you know I'm not Philip Roth, or this is not going to get to... So uh, some people who have read it, uh, some white friends, have uh, said, gee, that took a lot of courage or something like that. But I, uh, a couple of black friends did not feel that way, and uh, they were interested in it. So, I mean, people are individuals, and if you begin to generalize, that's where, you know, hell lies as far as I'm concerned. So... Um, uh, I was writing a very specific character. I wasn't writing about black people. I don't write about people. Uh, I write maybe two people or four people, but not about them. And I, um, I think the question of self-censorship is uh, certainly um, a, a, an important one. Uh, it's it's important for you as the as the maker of something. It's important in society too. Uh, when I think of you know growing up as a girl or a woman, the things that have been said to me and so on that would stop me from uh, possibly stop me from doing things. Uh, American Genius, a, a comedy, my last uh, novel. One of the rejections that it got was from a woman editor at a good small press. Uh, not such a small press, and she said, um, I don't know what Lynn Tillman is trying to teach me. And she would never have written that to a male author because uh, there, the, the idea that I, in this book, American Genius of Comedy, uh, had a character who knew a lot of things and was thinking about a lot of things and examining a lot of things, I was sort of stepping out the, outside the province of what a female narrator is supposed to be doing. But I quite happily will continue to do as much of that as I can. Um, so in order to fight self-censorship, you actually have to know the ways in which you're censored. And uh, that's... And rather, rather than to simply ex accept the strictures, I, uh, I, I I told you before I was um, teaching a writing class in Albany on uh, Wednesday, and uh, undergraduate fiction. No, it was a graduate fiction. It was Tuesday evening, and there were eight people in this uh, seminar. Four of them women. One of the women had written a story from the point of view of a man, and. Three of the four women said uh, that they didn't think that they could or should because they didn't know how men thought. And I was simply horrified. And uh, it was interesting that the four men in the, in the room, or the five men, none of them felt or said that. So it was the women policing other women, or it was the women uh, expressing that, that they didn't feel they could. And I said, and then I, I don't normally do this, but I got rather vehement. Well, maybe I do normally do this. I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I said that I uh, couldn't ever, um, I couldn't let this workshop end without saying that I felt that that attitude was 
censorious, self-censorious, censorious to others, and that, of course, women could write from the point of view of men, and men can write from the point of view of women, and and uh, I once wrote from the point of view of a 65-year-old gay man, um, and uh, in the first person, it's, it's, I think, I, I, I guess, the, I guess, uh, talking about the imagination, it's, you know, there are too many, I guess, limits to the imagination, um, our own limits, and I guess cultural and, and social limits, and I think as a writer for myself, I'm trying to figure out what they what they are and write against them. Let's let's learn a bit more about uh, some about limits from our French participants. Um, uh, the story that uh, Lynn just read is actually on the Villa Voice website. I was told today uh, Wayne Kestenbaum did a reading of it. So if you want to hear it again, you can uh, check it out. And also the book, uh, I can't recommend enough. All the stories are great. But uh, uh, let me introduce uh, Ruven Ogien, who, is a, who holds a doctorate in philosophy and social anthropology. He's the director of research in moral philosophy. And uh, he works... His work builds a non-paternalist, minimal ethics based on the principles of neutrality regarding concepts of the right and the good and the equal consideration of everyone. And he uh, has a text that's also available for us um, on the Villa website, Villa Voice. And uh, his piece is entitled Chic Censorship and the Invention of the Aesthetic Moralism. And I thought, Ruven, we'd just sort of plunge into that. And if you could maybe... Uh, set out what this concept that you're calling chic censorship is. I think like, actually I will read part of the text. Yeah. I thought that you will be reading yeah. it instead of me. It would have been easier. But uh, My point was that in, in modern Western societies, the production you know, and consumption of ex- explicit sexual representation in text and images have uh, always been more or less controlled or repressed by governments by institutions as a church or quite simply by public opinion. But there have always been uh, exceptions. For some time, artistic quality or aesthetic feeling have justified some exception. One might say that a new form of censorship or self-censorship has been invented, which I called chic censorship or aesthetic moralism. And actually, it's based on two fundamental principles. The first is when a sexual representation is, is artistic, it's okay, it's good, it shouldn't be censored, but when it is non-artistic, it's bad and should be censored. And the second principle is that sexual representation that seek to produce an uh, aesthetic sentiment are good, and sexual representations that seek only to arouse sexual excitement are bad and should be uh, uh, controlled. And my, my point was like actually very easy. It was just to show that... Li- I was surprised that liberals... Uh, publisher, artist, accepted so easily these two principles of censorship. And yeah. uh, I tried to find asking Sorry? about like yeah. Rambo 5. We never say that there are other genres have to have sort of a, uh, an extra uh, uh, quality that, you know, the literary merit, the quality of merit. And you bring up Celine Dion and Rambo 5, which is something we would never say that yeah. they have to have artistic merit in yeah. order to be. <laughs> Whereas I try to give some arguments to show that these two principles are wrong or what was wrong in these principles. But my own opinion is very simple, uh, well, maybe simplistic. It's like sexual representation, as long as you are not forced to watch them and as long as nobody was forced to model for them, shouldn't be censored at all. 
So this was my principle, and I think that censoring sexual representation because they are not artistic enough or because they just try to arouse your, some sexual excitement is not good a reason for censoring. Yeah. You also have a, a line where you say the principle of the literary exception might be incompatible with the rule of dem democratic societies. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that as well? Well, I saw that in, in these trials we had in France about pornography, most of the cases were dealt by judges in a quite liberal way that uh, in, in case they were supposed to be artistic, so they were d dismissed in a way, and when they were not artistic, then they were fined or sentenced. And then the idea is that when is a, a, a sexual representation uh, supposed to be non-artistic? It's basically when it's bad taste, mm -hmm. when it's like heavy, when it's uh, stupid. Uh, and oh, we know that most of the porn is like uh, bad taste. And my conclusion was what is punished in these cases is not the rep sex representation, but the, the fact that it is bad taste. <laughs> and, the, and, and the idea was that uh, in a democracy, uh, you shouldn't uh, uh, like punish people because of bad taste, because if not, we will all be in prison. <laughs> <laughs> and real quickly before we move on, can you maybe talk about France and America then when you think about the, the bad taste problem? Do you think we have it worse in America? <laughs> oh, you don't have bad taste. It doesn't exist here. Um, <laughs> let's introduce our fourth uh, participant. Um, Carol Talon-Ugon is also a philosopher, and she is a specialist in the theory of passions in the 17th century. She, she teaches philosophy and aesthetics at the University of Nice, and she's also the director for the Center for Research in the History of Ideas. Her work deals mainly with the history of classical philosophy, uh, with aesthetics, uh, and as well as the link between ethics and aesthetics. And her piece that she wrote for us, also available on the Villa Voice website is called The Censorship Debate. And um, it seems to me that the starting point for you was answering the question which you say, in the past, uh, not a soul was ever shocked by the fact that art was supposed to, to be submissive to political authority, whereas today this is you know, the, the point of outrage. And it seems that that's the question that you are investigating through your piece. Can you perhaps walk us through that? Oui, alors, je, je m'excuse, mais je vais parler en français. Sorry, but I'm going to speak in French. <laughs> euh, je je m'intéresse en effet à, à cette question de savoir pourquoi euh, la, 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 la censure est à ce point difficile aujourd'hui. C'est un sujet tabou. So I, well, I am indeed very interested in examining why censorship is such a difficult issue that we're dealing with today. D'autant plus que ce n'était pas le cas par le passé. Oh, the more so that this wasn't the case in the past. Et donc, lorsque on regarde les, les raisons pour lesquelles cette question est devenue sensible. So when you examine the issues as to why this issue has become so sensitive. On s'aperçoit que euh, il faut remonter l'histoire. You have to go back in history. Et considérer les, les événements and uh, examine the historical events qui ont fait que l'art est devenu une valeur en soi which led to art being considered a value in and of itself et une une activité qui euh, considère qu'elle n'a pas à être jugée selon des lois autres and, who, and an activity which considers that it has no there is no place in that it has no no right in being judged by laws that are other than 
that it considers other than itself. Autrement dit, euh, c'est à partir du 18e puis du 19e siècle so in other words, starting with the 18th and then the 19th century que sont apparues les idées d'autonomie de l'art the, the notion of the autonomy of art appeared et d'autonomie de l'art au sens aussi où l'art était et ne devait être soumis qu'à ses propres lois and autonomy also in the sense that art could only be submitted to its own laws donc ce pour répondre à votre question, ce à quoi on assiste, so c'est à une sorte de, de conflit entre deux types de valeurs sort of qui sont d'une part les valeurs euh, euh, de l'éthique. Alors, je fais une parenthèse parce que jusqu'à présent, on a beaucoup parlé, on a presque exclusivement parlé de pornographie. So I'm going to do a little aside because up until now, we've almost exclusively talked about pornography. À propos donc de la sexualité, de la, de la censure de la sexualité. censorship of sexuality. Mais il va de soi que euh, la question de la censure est beaucoup plus large que ça. Of course, it's a given that the issue of censorship is much larger than that. Et donc, il peut y avoir des œuvres euh, qui sont censurées parce qu'elles euh, elles sont euh, des atteintes aux droits des animaux ou because bien aux droits des femmes. Voilà, donc dans ces cas-là, c'est un débat qui est légèrement différent de celui qu'on a eu so ici. Et la, la manière dont j'ai travaillé, c'était d'étudier les discours d'accusation. So the way in which I worked is that I studied the, the accusation uh, texts. Voilà, les types d'accusations. The type of accusations. Et euh, les réponses à ces accusations. And the to those accusations. Et dans, ce, dans cette rencontre, on voit apparaître effectivement ces deux systèmes de valeurs. And in this encounter, you really see appear these two value systems come into light. Qui sont, euh, euh, qui sont polémiques, mais qui n'ont pas toujours été polémiques. Parce que avant le XVIIIe siècle, et même surtout avant le XIXe siècle, l'art n'était pas une province... Euh, Indépendante. Art was not an independent province. It does seem that you also have a, a matrix of looking at how um, both the rallying cry for the rights of artists or the, the suppression, the censorship being a work having a problem in and of itself. In other words, the work is the problem. Separately being, it's the effects. And this goes all the way back to Plato where, you know, this image or this piece of writing is, is going to corrupt the youth, therefore we must get rid of it. Can you talk a little bit about those two distinct, mm. and, and how they maybe play out for maybe France and America? En effet, parmi les types d'accusations qui ont été formulées, so amongst the charges that were brought against in, in an art context, uh, j'ai distingué trois types d'accusations. So I've, I've uh, identified three types of charges. Le premier, ça consiste à dire qu'une œuvre, par exemple, est mauvaise et peut éventuellement être censurée. Parce qu'elle fait exister le mal. Because it makes evil exist. Je fais référence dans mon texte à des à des, des citations de, de, par exemple, de Victor Hugo. In my essay, I mention, I, I quote Victor Hugo qui parle des romans de Zola, Who talks about Zola's novels. 
Émile Zola, donc, dont les nouvelles peuvent être très dures et parler de, de choses euh, concernant euh, des populations euh, très pauvres vivant so, des... Émile Zola's work can be very harsh at times and he often deals with the segments of society living in very poor conditions. Et euh, se comportant de façon terrible And aussi. also behaving in very uh, terrible ways as well. Et euh, Victor Hugo reproche à Zola d'avoir peint, d'avoir dépeint, d'avoir décrit ça. And Victor Hugo reproches Zola for having depicted and painted this fact. Non pas parce que ça, il, il dit quelque chose qui n'existe pas. Not because he is writing, describing something that does not exist. Mais parce que ces choses existent, mais qu'on ne doit pas les les donner en pâture, qu'on ne doit pas les faire encore une fois exister. Alors ça, c'est le, euh, le premier type d'argument. Le deuxième type d'argument consiste à reprocher aux œuvres d'avoir des effets délétères. Donc, c'est la critique classique qu'on trouve chez Platon, par exemple. Mais aussi chez Aristote. But also with Aristotle, ou chez, chez Rousseau. Rousseau. L'idée qu'il y a une, une contagion du mal. Et enfin, il y a une troisième, un troisième type d'argument. So que j'ai appelé l'argument de l'esthétisation déplacée, qui consiste à dire que euh, certains sujets, certain lorsqu'on lorsqu en fait des, des sujets d'une œuvre d'art, réclament un certain type d'attention. Call, call upon themselves a certain form of attention. Une attention esthétique, c'est-à-dire une attention désintéressée. Meaning an aesthetic attention, meaning a disinterested form of attention. Or, de tels sujets réclament au contraire une, une, une implication et non However, pas le désintéressement. However, these topics require a form of implication and not a form of disinterestedness. C'est par exemple le, ce type de reproche qu'on trouve chez Adorno. And that's the type of, of criticism you find in Adorno. Well, let's, let's see if we can uh, uh, bring everyone together now. To, thank you for that. Um, to, to engage in some of this. So I think this idea of context that Gruven was talking about, um, uh, in other words, when, in, when a work of art, when a work of something that's obscene or pornographic is given a sheen of a, a, an artistic sense, then it suddenly becomes okay. I'm wondering for you, Nan, when you're talking about your own career, is that something, like, what would you respond to that? Like, over time, you know, when you, when you think of sort of art, especially even, let's talk about the present. You know, I think the sexuality of children seems to be one that you were bringing up, which seems like really, you know, one to talk about since it's so recent. It was the most recent example you brought up. Is, in other words, are images like this okay when all this, you know, when, when in, in an art context? It wasn't in an art context. Yeah. It was in a uh, commercial context. How many people think this is pornography? Come on. What about the Show other the one? Other one yeah. <laughs> How many people think that's pornographic? You do? 
Oh, you're not talking into the microphone. I thought I had a loud voice. Um, how many people here think this is pornography? One woman has said yes. It depends where you see. I'm sorry. Can somebody give her a mic? She should have a mic. I've never been on any website by choice in my whole life, and I haven't. And I certainly would never put this on a porno website. For me, there's, it never occurred to me it was pornographic. It's about a younger sister's worship of the older sister. And that's what it's about. And it's about these two girls that love me and always did a performance for me. So to me, there's no pornography in this whatsoever. I'm not trying to incite anybody to want to sexually abuse these children. Um, a baby's body, to consider that pornographic, is so sad and shows how disgusting this world has become to me. The idea that nude flesh is considered pornographic. I mean, people seem to be, to have forgotten that they were born naked and also that they were born from women. And misogyny always shocks me because of that, because they're hating their mother, blah, 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 blah. But how can people think that nudity taken of people you love is in any way... How could this little vagina be pornographic? You had one when you were young, too. There, there are uh, l l people in a legislative context, though, <laughs> deciding these. And, Gruven, you, you, you read about this in your paper. Could you maybe talk a little bit about this? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, I would make a, a general point. I don't understand why artists, uh, writers, or painters, or photographers have to defend themselves so much from doing pornography when we don't know even what pornography means and if it's yeah. that bad. So I don't think that we have to... Sh uh, whenever we are showing a picture, say, well, that, that's not pornography because if pornography, so what if it is pornography? Uh, there is an open debate about what it is, pornography. Uh, and, uh, you know, pornography, the, this definition I've given is a legal definition. It means that it's uh, Judge Almas said once that he doesn't know what's pornography, he can define it, but when he sees it, he knows <laughs> what it is. Yeah, well, but I, I disagree with him. <laughs> well, not for the first part. The first part, we don't know how to define pornography, but it's not sure that we know what's pornography when we see it, because the difference between eroticism Soft porn, arm porn is not that obvious. So I, I, I wouldn't go that fast in, in trying to defend myself if I write a piece about sex and say it's not pornography. I would accept it gladly if someone would be excited by it. <laughs> um, also, I think that uh, there are changes in whatever pornography is, and I agree with you, we don't know what it is, but what's considered something that shouldn't be shown a uh, hundred years ago is shown without nobody's thinking about those things uh, I was uh, 
in class again with these students, and I was um, one of the students was talking, uh, had written something where um, my father made me suck his cock. And so we're all discussing this in class, and suddenly I had a vision of Henry James, you know, if he were in, in the class, and I think, well, this is, this is the thing, this is it, you know, this is the it that Henry James never kept, kept secret, you know, I mean, not, uh, but that, that kind of carnal uh, sexual thing, and here we were discussing it as if we were talking about just anything, uh, and so the, 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 uh, the guidelines, not only don't we know what pornography is, uh, but the, the guidelines in general social uh, discourse and what, what happens on the street every day are entirely diff- changing all the time, too. Yeah, the, the quote is from Justice um, Potter, Steve Stewart, it's from 1964, and the actual line is, he said it's... Uh, I wrote this out. Um, we know it when we see it. We don't know how to yeah, define it. Yeah. We don't know how to define it, but I shall not today attempt to further define it. And for me, I guess the key word is almost today. And I was thinking um, for you, Nan, thinking about how many photographers. So some of the images that you took earlier on are almost, you've influenced a whole generation of uh, fashion photography. In other words, they, you, can, you can see a lot of similarities today. In other words, what was taboo even 25 years ago is completely changed, and, and and I guess almost today, as you were talking about, Lynn seems to be a key word in figuring out the context. I hope I didn't um, that my major mark I made in photography was not about fashion. Oh, I mean, fashion and art photography. Sorry, I, I meant photography. I think the wrong things are kept private and secret. Certainly, the nude body is one of them. Sexual sexuality is one of them. On the other hand, I have a real hard time with vicarious uh, violence, you know, the usual um, things that are used in arguments. But I do have a lot of problems with those things. I don't know that I believe in censorship of anything. There are a few things I want to say about the things my colleagues said. Um, I don't think that you're speaking on the level that I'm about to speak on. But I was a bartender in Times Square for five years, and I saw a lot of people who worked in the pornography business who were so exploited and destroyed by working in that business. And the difference is to use that kind of imagery when the people uh, to make these magazines that are about fucking little kids um, and the pe- and seeing the people who work in pornography, the, um, the models for the magazines and how they have to be... Most of them were heavily... were junkies because they couldn't really live any other way. So you... In a certain context, I don't really like pornography. I'm not one to decide what's pornographic or not, but I know what is the business of pornography. So my line has always been, if it's making money, it's pornographic. Like making these kind of half-sexual images of young people to sell clothes. That's, to me, a lot more pornographic 
than anything I've done or any artist has ever done. It's, for me, it's about commerce, I guess. Um, and also about that we've come forward. I was just working in the Louvre for eight months, photographing the paintings and the sculptures. There are so many naked little kids in those paintings. And we're talking about the 16th and 17th and 18th century. It was much wilder than imagery now. So I don't think we've come further. I think we've gone way back. But if it's about commerce, don't, I mean, don't some artists who take nude pictures artistically make money? I mean, Spielberg it's person. only about money. I'm not talking, yeah, that's true, but um, it's not intentionally exploiting somebody. Um, it's not intentionally, I mean, I, I guess a lot of artists make things to sell. That wasn't my day, you know, I wasn't brought up as that kind of artist, and it's not the way I think about art. Um, it's just from the years that I worked in Times Square, and one of the women who owned the bar, who I very, very much admired and showed me the politics of my own work, was involved in Women Against Pornography. I wasn't involved in that group, but I also saw firsthand the effects of working in that business, as a business. And I think that's a lot different, for instance, than the letter I got from these two girls you know, for, to help when the police in in uh, London were going to prosecute me, talking about uh, the joy in these pictures. I don't know. Yeah. It's much more complicated than that. You're right. I wanted to bring up some of the but work. I think he wanted to say something. No, well, I, I, I had the same answer, that most of art today is made for money, and we don't call it pornography. If not, we would have called Spielberg's movie pornographic. Some do it. They call them, like... Pornography, because they are trying to be. So the, 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 it's not enough. Like it might be necessary, but it's not sufficient to say that it is uh, pornography. That you try to make money out of it. It's not enough. No, but exploitation. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Of course, who could? But the the problem is the same with prostitution, for example. It's very hard to have a philosophical point of view about. Uh, like exchanging sex for money if you just take into account the, uh, the actual conditions of prostitution. They are awful, people are exploited, there is traffic of women, but it doesn't help us know if there is something wrong in exchanging your sexual capacities against money. We don't know this. It's not enough. We can, for example, say that there is something terrible in, in, the, in prostitution today without blaming prostitution as such. And I no. think it's the same with I pornography. Think prostitution is wonderful. Okay, I, I so mean, it's, the, it's it a good start to go back to pornography on this basis. <laughs> okay. Um, it depends if somebody chooses to be a prostitute or somebody is taken. There's a lot of sexual slavery in the world now, a lot of it. And I don't know how much people are doing, thinking about it or doing anything to help. But. Um, Pornography is the first known um, job, isn't it, in history? Prostitution. Prostitution. Yeah. And I see nothing wrong with exchanging money for sex. It just, of course, there's still the issue of the situation, like these people who are taken as sex slaves. How can you rationalize that? 
I mean, it's, this is not, I think sometimes things become too intellectualized and not about the real world. And my feeling, for instance, about um, political correctness is that it started out of a desire to be careful and sympathetic and empathetic about how people used words. And then that turned into a sort of very grave, rule-oriented, almost Stalinistic um, position on what we can or can't say. But what its beginnings were, were great. And I, I don't know. It, it seems that there's consequences, too, with that, Nana. If I think of the 80s and some of your work uh, you know, with AIDS, you know, when you had, as you mentioned earlier, with Ronald Reagan even refusing to acknowledge the word, you know, therefore killing lots of people, it seems that at the same time that uh, I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit more about work that period and the political natures of censorship, especially because right now we have the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, who's you know been locked up for, uh, in you know in in in, in China, an, an artist. So, you know, and again, that's that's real power we're talking when we talk about art and censorship and power. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that work? You know, that that was one of the censorship examples that you brought up. But I just want to maybe move it away from trying to define pornography to to some more examples about. You know, censorship, which to me I think is, is 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 quite a story that you touched on earlier. I don't even know the artist. Um, this is the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, who's in He's a contemporary artist. I know. I don't remember which one. But um, what did I touch on that you just wanted to ask? Talking me. about you know the Catholic Church and, and talking about AIDS, and and again as an artist, censorship, and just bringing this back to political. Censorship and bringing it back to real, you know, questions of power. And so, if you maybe talk a little bit. I think I've been censored many, many, many times, and I can only talk about myself and the people I know. I mean, I I'm aware of the Iranian filmmaker who couldn't come to the film Berlin Film Festival because he's in jail. I'm aware of these things. I'm not as knowledgeable, I'm sure, as my um, companion, as my Compatriots, whatever you're called, um, <laughs> as, as these people who think over there. Um, I just, you know, I know that the governments are incredibly controlling, but on the other hand, the American government is also, it's just more subtle, like taking a, in 1990, and I applied, or 91, I applied for a National Endowment grant. We had to sign a statement that we wouldn't take any pictures that were in any way showing sex between men, uh, homosexuality. And I refused to sign it, so I didn't get the money. And out of 30 photographers, only two of us refused to sign it. So the level of disconnection from politics is something that distresses me a lot about the art world. And there are artists all over, you know, the number of artists that are like Rashid, oh, what's his name? So, uh, Salam. Yeah. I used to wake up every morning and think, well, how, never how, no matter how bad this day is, he's having a worse day. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I know that there are many governments, but I think our government, which is supposedly free and liberal, is having the same power. 
on people, and I think they do censor themselves. And um, the whole AIDS thing is an issue of censorship. When I moved to Europe, and I first started uh, spending a lot of time there in the 90s in Berlin, nobody talked about AIDS. There was no ACT UP. The same in Paris in 95. When I first went there, there were 50 people in ACT UP. And, when I, and there was enormous amount of self-censorship. People didn't want their friends or colleagues to know that they had AIDS. And one of the people I photographed, a lot of was uh, one of my dear, dear friends there. And I photographed him. I was with him the moment he died. When those pictures were shown in the Whitney, a number of French people were furious at me because he had not allowed them to come see him in the hospital. So they didn't know what AIDS looked like. And they were furious that I had shown these pictures of Gilles. They said to me, we don't need ACT UP because we have good hospitals. This is what the Europeans were saying to me in the 90s. I think that's changed a lot in the last, what is it, 20 years, 15 years? I, I, I wondered if I could ask our French visitors about um, the veil and uh, what's and what they're uh, thinking about in terms of uh, the, new, the new law in, in France. That you can't afford Yeah, yeah. Of, you know, the prohibition that no one could, women can't wear the veil. No, no, c'est pour toi. Moi, je fais de l'esthétique et lui fait de la morale. I'm an aesthetics, he does ethics. Well, it has nothing to do with ethics. It's only politics. You don't want to say anything? Well, basically, I'm against the law. I think it's stupid law. Uh, it's not justified because it's based on the on idea of human dignity, and it's uh, you know, the idea of human dignity is used in many different ways. You can, for example, forbid uh, euthanasia on grounds of dignity, or you can fight for euthanasia on grounds of dignity. Same with prostitution. You can fight for the right for sex workers uh, to uh, uh, like uh, work freely uh, on grounds of dignity, or you can do the contrary to forbid prostitution. And I think it's the same. I don't understand the the basis on which the the law was. Uh, yeah. How, based. how how will French people who disagree with it? Are there are there protests being mounted now? Or well, there has been a, a, the first demonstration uh, like two days ago. I think when the law was effective, was enforced. And then there was a demonstration, and the police said that it is a stupid law. They don't know what to do. They don't want to send to jail a woman who is uh, dressed like this. It won't help anything. So now it's from the inside, from the police, that the, the most uh, progressive and liberals are coming. <laughs> I, I have a question for, for you, Carol. It seems that when you make that distinction about um, power responding to or attempting to censor by saying that the work itself needs to be censored or the work will have disastrous effects for society. When, can you maybe talk a little bit more about how you see that playing out? Which one seems to work better? And, you know, or maybe even talking about France and America, those two contexts. Um, je, je pense que la, la différence la plus importante entre la, la France et l'Amérique... I think the most important difference between France and the United States... 
ne porte pas tant sur la sur le, le jeu entre ces deux euh, arguments I think doesn't have to do so much with the, the tension between these two arguments parce que ces, ces deux arguments je les ai trouvés aussi bien aux États-Unis qu'en France because I found these arguments equally in France as in the United States mais en revanche il y a une différence forte however there is a, a marked difference euh, lorsque l'on veut défendre une œuvre controversée When you want to defend a controversial work of art, aux États-Unis, il est, euh, il est, il est, il est plus efficace. In the United States, it's more efficient. De d'invoquer la liberté d'expression. To invoke freedom of expression. En France, il est plus efficace d'invoquer. In France, it's more uh, efficient to invoke. La, la, les droits imprescriptibles de l'art. The arts imprescriptible. imprescriptible. Rights. <laughs> voilà. Bien sûr, on peut invoquer les, la liberté d'expression en France ou of, la liberté de création. Of course, freedom of expression or freedom of creativity can also be invoked in France. Mais ça ne suffirait pas en France si il n'y avait pas en, de, en dessous de ça. But it wouldn't suffice in France if underlying all this. Euh, S'il n'y avait pas donc l'idée de la souveraineté de l'art. L'idée uh, que l'art est une, est une zone de non-droit. Non une zone d'extraterritorialité. De, sort of zone of extraterritoriality in voilà. terms of rights. D'après euh, beaucoup d'enquêtes sociologiques menées, so a lot of sociological studies have been undertaken. De, de, de grandes affaires qui ont agité la France et les États-Unis montrent bien que la, 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 la défense la plus efficace n'est pas la même en France et aux États-Unis. For those two types of censorship, is there one that is maybe more offensive than the other? In other words, this work needs to be censored because it's, it's just pornography, because someone's decided that definition, or we have to censor this work because it might end up on a website and be used in a wrong context, or it might, you know, be bad for society. Do you, do you two see a difference even in those two? Or is it just plain censorship either way? You know, I, I, was, I, I, was, I, I started thinking about, as you, as you were talking, the, about how the uh, words, how books are experienced as compared with visual images. And if there, how much, uh, that's what I was thinking about, the sense how we respond to a visual image in, uh, and how we uh, respond to written uh, images. And there seems to be such a, dis, a, a disjunction now. Uh, maybe, I, I, I don't know what book was last censored in the United States. Uh, David Wonorovich. His book, this book, you mean? He was very proud yeah. that words could still be yeah. strong enough to be censored. Right, and he was attacking the, the church. Um, and the go oh yeah I didn't read the other part where he talks about setting Jesse Helms on fire Sorry, right <laughs> <laughs> right and he was very proud that words could still yeah. be meaningful enough yeah but uh, but 
And I think that's, that's great as somebody who works with words. But I'm thinking that most of these arguments that we're discussing now have to do with visual images uh, in, and pornography. And uh, uh, so the question of the, the two, the, the division of the, the two, which one is more odious, I... Uh, I, I or which one is easier no. to fight, I guess, for you as an artist? In other words, she was talking about in France having that defense being able to mount, you know, the rights of an artist, or as you as a creative person, do you, do you, would you feel Well, that? I would imagine the former would be easier because the effects of a work of art are, are completely um, unknown to anyone making anything. You, don't, you have no idea, uh, as a writer, if your work will have any effect at all. It, 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 uh, it's not a, whatever you do, you're not making the meaning. Other people make the meaning from it. So... Uh, I would imagine if uh, if it were a legal battle of some sort, the f the, f the first would be the the one that would be easier to fight. I want to say two things. Once I've, I mean, one the first is that I've been more or less living in Paris, and there's a demonstration almost every other day, mm -hmm. which you don't see in America. And I'm very proud to be in Paris because of that. Unfortunately, I've tried to join one and it was anti-abortion. But that wasn't... <laughs> that wasn't in France, it was in some other country. It looked really good. And then... The second thing is this image has been censored in Paris, France. Um, when the Festival d'Automne published the catalog, and this was one of the images used that year, Telerama, which is backed by the Catholic Church, published this, spoke about Festival of Tom, as they always do, shows images from it. They decided to shred 10,000 copies of this catalog because of this picture. So I'm censored as much in France. So this thing that you're not, you people, I mean, that the European is not censored. And also, when I was talking about AIDS, the degree of self-censorship that people of, with AIDS, that was all European. And, for instance, this argument that you had better hospitals <coughs> is very distressing to me. So there was no AIDS activism for a long time. So each country has their own way. It's all bad. <laughs> <laughs> to achieve the same result. 